0: Luke 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea, and all the surrounding country. This
1: is 1 Kings 17, uh, verses 8 to 24. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord, your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it, and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah." After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, "'What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son.' And he said to her, "'Give me your son.' And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, "'O Lord my God!' Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth.
2: Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold,
0: Psalm 103, 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust.
1: Let me pray briefly for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help me now to preach your word with accuracy and with power. Holy Spirit, would you fill me now for this work of the ministry that you've given me to do? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we continue on in Luke chapter 7 this week, and we see the story of Jesus raising the dead son of a widow who had no other family left. And in some ways, we see this story is really very similar to the story of last week, and it repeats many of the themes of the Gospel of Luke. So one of the primary themes of the Gospel of Luke that we've seen is that Jesus came for outsiders. He came for sinners. He came for the weak, for the poor. Anyone who could be considered to be outside of the mainstream of society or outside of the power centers of society, that this is who Jesus came for. And last week we saw this in the story of the slave of the centurion. So again, normally Jews wouldn't have anything to do with Roman centurions, much less their slaves. And yet Jesus has compassion on the slave and and heals him. And this week it's a poor widow who has no other family left. She is a woman who has no real credit to her name, no great wealth that she could give to Jesus, no great reputation that she could offer to his cause. She is simply a widow who is suffering and sad by the loss of her son. And yet, Jesus takes thought of her. And another similarity we see between the story from last week and the story of this week is we see the great power of Jesus' word. So, last week in the case of the centurion, the centurion tells Jesus, you know, I myself am a man under authority and you only need speak the words and my servant will be healed. And sure enough, that's what Jesus does. He speaks the word and the servant is healed. And again, this week, we see the same power at work when he comes upon the dead son and he simply tells him to rise up and walk. And so in some sense, the the message that I'm going to proclaim from this story here could be the same message proclaimed from the story last week, although there are different emphases. Again, last week, I think the emphasis was more on the fact that the centurion was a Gentile. And so it was showing us how by faith alone, God's salvation was going to come to the Gentiles, that that's what that centurion showed. And in this week... I think that the emphasis of this story is more on the character of Jesus. It's more on the character of Jesus. And what I want you to see about the character of Jesus this morning is really just two things. First, I want you to see the compassion of Jesus. And secondly, I want you to see the power of Jesus. I want you to see the compassion of Jesus. And I want you to see the power of Jesus. And beloved, it's my belief that if you truly can see just how compassionate Jesus was and just how powerful Jesus was, it will cause you to love him more. It will cause you to want to spend more time with him. It will cause you to desire to be more like him because you cannot see the beauty of Jesus' compassion and the beauty of Jesus' power and go unchanged. It is precisely through seeing the goodness and the power of God in the person of Jesus Christ that our own hearts are transformed and we become new people. And so it's my prayer that you will see that this morning. And again, children, I believe that you can understand this as well, that you can understand that Jesus is both full of love and he's full of power. And so I hope you can see how this works works together. So if you want to take notes, those can be your two headings. Or if you want to draw a picture during this time, you can draw the picture of Jesus raising this boy from his coffin. But let's move forward now, and let's see first Jesus' compassion. Now, I believe that it's difficult for us as Americans and as Westerners to truly comprehend Jesus' compassion. And I say that because when I'm talking of Jesus' compassion, I'm primarily speaking of an emotion that Jesus had, something that happened in his heart. And it's hard for us to conceive of Jesus, I think, as having enormous things happening inside of his heart. We who come from the Western tradition tend to minimize the value of emotions, and we tend to raise the value of reason or rationality. And because of that, when we think of Jesus as being perfect, or when we think of God as being perfect, we can be very prone to seeing God as perfectly passionless, that is perfectly emotionless, right? We think that emotions are somehow a weakness, that they show that there's something wrong with us. And really, God must just be perfectly reasonable all the time, right? He doesn't get too worked up about anything. He doesn't get too down about anything. He's just, you know, steady state all the time. And indeed, I think we see this oftentimes in the portrayals of Jesus in film, right? Jesus always seems to just have this kind of mild seriousness about him, you know? He's never really jumping for joy. He's never really crying. He's just always kind of peaceful and at ease. And so we think that part of what it means to be truly godly or to be really a man of God or a woman of God is that we don't have really high and low emotions. Rather, we're always very reasonable, We're very tough and persevering, and that this is what it means to truly be a person of God. And that's, again, what we ascribe to Jesus. But, beloved, this is grossly unbiblical. It comes much more from our Western tradition than it comes from anything that the Bible says. I think this is why Jewish spirituality paints a much better picture of the life of the emotions in someone who truly wants to follow God. Simply consider the person of King David, right? He's the only person in all of Scripture who we're told was a man after God's own heart. And so I think in David, we're supposed to see something of God's own heart. And what do we see in King David? Well, I don't think I've ever witnessed, whether anywhere in writing or meeting in person, a person with greater emotional range and depth than what King David had. And of course, we know that he had such emotional range and depth because he wrote so many of the Psalms. And we can read in some of the Psalms how David's crying out to the Lord as if the Lord were deaf and David was totally without hope. He seems totally crushed, as crushed as a person could be. And so he writes poetry and cries out to the Lord out of this despair that he has. And yet, in other psalms, we see him so full of rejoicing and celebration and praise of the Lord that it's almost like nothing is going wrong in his life at all. And so he's full of exuberance. And so in David, we see this picture of a man who is after God's own heart, who truly was the sort of man that that God wanted mankind to be, who perfectly displayed the whole range of emotion. He was angry at those who hated God. He loved those who loved God. He was sad and despairing when he felt like God did not hear him. And he was over the moon when he felt near to the Lord. He had emotions that were formed by Scripture, formed by the law of God, formed by the word of God, and rightly conformed to God's world. But again, if you go back in our own tradition, our own culture to the ancient Greeks, You'll find people like Plato who taught that the material world wasn't as real as the world of ideas. And that's why we shouldn't get too worked up about what happens in the material world because it's really the world of ideas that's more important. Or we see the philosopher Aristotle who taught that a really good person would always walk in the mean between two extremes, right? That he wouldn't fall into one ditch or the other ditch, but he'd always go walking down the middle. And again, these ideas have come down over millennia to us, and they still are reinforced in our culture today. And yet again, the Bible is replete with examples of men and women in their very lowest emotional state, crying out to God. And the very highest emotional state, rejoicing in God. So we ourselves should consider, how does God want us to have a heart like his? What should our emotions be like As people of God. Well, this is part of what is involved in the doctrine that Jesus became fully human. To say that Jesus became fully human means that he experienced, that he could experience, and that he still experiences the full range of human emotion. And even though he has ascended into heaven now, we believe that he still has his bodily form and that he still experiences all that humans can experience emotionally. When Jesus became human, when he descended from heaven and came to earth, I believe that he actually experienced human emotional life on the deepest degree. His emotions were not numbed or lessened because he was also divine. No, they were heightened, they were raised. Indeed, I think that no human has ever experienced such profound emotions as Jesus did. And we can consider this in part, I think, just by considering that Jesus alone had a right concept of what is perfect and good apart from human fallenness, right? He came down from heaven. He knew God perfectly. He knew what the world was supposed to be like. He knew how people were supposed to live, And he alone knew that perfectly. And because of that, when he saw human life go awry, whether because of sin or whether because of suffering, he could have a heart that was more broken over it than any of us could have. You see, one of the emotional ticks that I think all of us develop as we grow older as just a kind of coping mechanism for dealing with the messed up world that we're in, is we all develop a certain level of cynicism or jadedness, right? We just come to expect, you know, that suffering is part of the human life, that sin is part of the human condition. And so sometimes when sin happens or when suffering happens, we just really shouldn't worry about it because this is just normal. We simply expect things to be bad so that when they are bad, Our emotions aren't totally destroyed by it. And yet again, consider that Jesus was not cynical in the least. He knew how God had created the world. He knew God's great plan for the future of humanity and the future of the world. He knew what things were supposed to be like. And so when things were not that way, in big ways or small ways, he was moved in his heart by it. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. So again, if you go to Luke chapter 7 and beginning in verse 11, it says that Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So just picture this happening. Jesus is moving on from Capernaum, where he had just been, and he's going to this small town called Nain, and he's got a big crowd with him. You know, everybody's seen the miracles that he's doing. Everybody's seen, everybody's heard his powerful teaching. And so everybody just kind of wants to follow after Jesus. And so he has this big crowd around him. And then verse 12, it says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And so Jesus comes upon his town and he simply sees this sight. Now notice first how remarkable it is that Jesus would notice this woman. Again, he has this huge crowd following him around. At least 12 of them are his devoted disciples who would do anything that he says. And another big crowd are just kind of hangers on because they're impressed by Jesus' power and they just kind of want to be around him to see him. And yet in the midst of all these people and in the midst of all this social power that he has to guide these people wherever he might want, he notices a widow who has lost her son. He simply draws near to the gate and he sees this woman. And it doesn't tell us much about what this woman was doing, but she must obviously have been in enormous grief. She was a widow. Her her husband had died. It says it was her only son. Consider how especially in this culture, in this day, women were so dependent upon men for any kind of livelihood or stability in their life, and now she has lost her only son. She must have been weeping and weeping with sorrow. And this considerable crowd from the town was with her. And then verse 13 is just such a beautiful verse. It says, when the Lord saw her, now notice it calls him the Lord there. (laughs) When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Again, beloved, consider all the millions of things that Jesus could have been doing in that moment. All the works that were available for him to do, all the preaching that he still had to do, all the ministry that he still had to do. And yet, when Jesus saw this widow who was weeping, he had compassion on her. Now, this word compassion in the Greek, it it refers to more than just a, a passing pity or a feeling bad for someone. No, it refers to a depth of feeling where it's like your, your stomach is churning within you. Indeed, the noun form of this verb, if you change this verb into a noun, then it is the word for a person's guts or their intestines. This is the level of feeling that Jesus had for this woman. He sees that her son has died and his heart is broken within him. I just imagine Jesus remembering in that moment the glories of heaven. How there was no death anywhere, how there was no weeping anywhere, how there was no suffering, and yet here he is on this earth and he sees this woman losing her last family member, and how his heart must have been so shattered and broken within him to see the world in such a sick and twisted place that this would happen to this poor widow and so his heart was moved within him and his heart was so moved that he goes up and he stops this whole funeral procession. Again, this woman had a large crowd behind her and Jesus simply goes up and he interrupts the whole affair and he tells this woman, do not weep. And then it says he came up and touched the bier. A beer is simply a stretcher that you use to to carry a dead body. So he comes up and he touches the beer, which is an enormous statement of, again, how Jesus was willing to cast out social norms because normally any respectable Jewish person wouldn't want to come near a dead body. And yet here is Jesus going up to this dead young man and the bearers stood still. So, notice how this passage is slowing down for us moment by moment to record the heart of Jesus and to record the actions of Jesus that followed from this. And then, verse 14 Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So again, we see the compassion of Jesus and his heart being so moved within him that he would go up, that he would stop this funeral service and that he would raise up this young man from the dead. And so, beloved, if you can see Jesus' compassion on this dead young man, then consider, beloved, his compassion toward you as well. When you are sick, when you are suffering, when you are mourning, when you are lonely, when you are grieving even over your sin, Jesus sees your suffering and he has compassion on you. His heart is moved within him to draw near to you to help you. This is the heart of our great Savior. And because Jesus has this sort of heart, We are able, secondly, to see his power. Again, Jesus did not simply move to this action of raising this dead boy because he was just reasoning through it and he was thinking, how can I show everyone how powerful I am and how great I am? I know, I'm going to raise this young man from the dead. Jesus was not thinking through this logically as the reason why he would raise this young man from the dead. No, his heart was moved within him, and that is why he went and he exercised his power. And so second, notice Jesus' power. So we don't have the same problem, I think, in conceiving of Jesus' power as we had in conceiving of Jesus' emotions about his heart being moved. It's easy for us to think about how great and how powerful God was and God is. And yet, consider again just how remarkable what Jesus did is. That he simply came up and he said to this man, in the Greek it's just three words. Here in English we have seven. But he said to him, young man, I say to you, arise. And with these words alone, the young man is raised from the dead. It says that he sat up immediately and he began to speak. Now, just like last week, the story of Jesus healing the centurion was written in light of the story of Naaman and how Elijah had healed this warrior of Syria. So this week, Jesus is again being compared to Elijah. We read in 1 Kings about how Elijah also healed a widow's son, a widow who was on the brink of death, a widow who was mourning. And we see how Elijah healed the son. And yet when we read that passage, two things really stand out about it. Firstly is, I don't know if you noticed, but I don't notice the same compassion in Elijah's heart that Jesus had in his heart. So when the widow talks about how she's going to go and she's going to cook her last meal and then she's going to die, well, instead of Elijah instantly being moved with compassion, he says, no, make something for me first and then you can make something for yourself. So he's not moved with compassion in the same way. And again, when this widow's son dies, she has to cry out to him and accuse him of betraying her. And only then is he moved to do something about this dead young man. Whereas Jesus, again, he sees what is going on without a single word from the mother. He moves toward her. And yet here, in the story of Elijah, again in 1 Kings 17, the woman cries out, says that, Elijah, you've betrayed me. And then in verse 19, it says, He said to her, Give me your son, And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And it says, Then the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And so compare here Elijah with Jesus and the power that they both have. Elijah was indeed a man mighty in the power of God. So many miracles are recorded that Elijah performed. And yet Elijah, when healing this young man, he cries out to the Lord twice, asking the Lord, Lord, will you please heal this young man? And then it even says he lays himself out on top of this young man as if Some ritual needed to happen in order for this young man to be able to be raised from the dead. And of course, it is effective, and the child is raised up. And again, this is Elijah, one of the most powerful prophets in all of Scripture. And this is the sort of power that he has. Now again, compare that to the power of Jesus. Does he cry out to God multiple times? Does he stretch himself out on the bier to raise up this dead young man? No. He simply says, Young man, I say to you, arise. (laughs) And the young man, even though he's dead, must listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this reminds us of this other passage we read in Ezekiel about the valley of dry bones. And when God wants to raise up these dry bones and give them life, how is it that God is going to do that? What power does he use to do that? Well, the refrain that he continually tells to Ezekiel is he says, Ezekiel, prophesy over these dry bones that they might be raised up. And so Ezekiel prophesies. And by the power of that prophecy, by the power of the spoken word, those bones form sinew and flesh. He says, prophesy that breath may come into them. And he prophesies and breath comes into them. It is by the power of speech that God works, that he gives life to the dead. And so immediately we jump into Luke 7. And whose word is it that raises the dead? It is the word of Jesus when he says, young man, I say to you, arise, and death itself is shut down. And the young man sits up and begins to speak. Notice also in comparing this story to the story of Elijah, it says Elijah then had to carry the young man down the stairs and give him to his mother. So even though the young man revived, it seems that he must have still been a little sick or not feeling well. But Jesus, when he heals, <laughs> this young man sits up in an instant and he begins to speak. The healing is complete. complete. The young man is better, and he is well. Beloved, we should be amazed by the power of Jesus Christ. And beloved, that power of Jesus Christ that was at work on behalf of this young man is the same power of Christ that is at work in you. It is possible for you, beloved, as you draw near to God, and as you ask God, for his power to be filled with the Spirit, for this same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that Jesus used when he spoke life into this dead boy's body, the same power is at work on your behalf, beloved. Scripture says that we were dead in our sins when Christ came to rescue us. And so the same power that speaks life Into this dead young man is the same power that speaks spiritual life to you. Is there any sin that you are now battling, that you are wrestling with, that you just feel yourself hopeless to overcome? Is there any sort of change that you want to see in your life that maybe you've worked at and prayed for for years, but you just don't see that change happening? Beloved God is able to do it. His power is unfathomable. And beloved, as great as Jesus' compassion and power is displayed in the story of him healing this widow's son, his compassion and his power is even better displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Beloved, when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross because his heart was moved in compassion for you and for me. He saw our hopeless state. Again, when we ourselves did not see our state as hopeless, we were happy in our sin. We were going our own way in arrogance and pride, thinking that all was well. And yet Jesus could look on us and he could see that we were like sheep without a shepherd. He could see that we were lost and that we needed rescue. And so because he was moved in compassion, he himself goes to the cross in order to die in our place, beloved. So in his compassion, he endures the suffering of torture and death for us. So great is his compassion. And his power is then fully displayed. Because even though he is dead for three days... We see that death cannot hold him. And he, with his own authority, rises up from the dead and he lives forevermore. And he gives that same power to you and to me, beloved. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that God has given to us. I just want us to see this briefly in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. In Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, Paul is offering a prayer for the Ephesians. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, That's the first thing there to know. Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then notice the third thing that Paul prays for them to know. In verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Again, not toward us who labor, not toward us who have proven ourselves, but toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Beloved, this is the power that is at work in us who believe. The power that raised this widow's son, the power that raised Jesus himself from the dead is the power that is now at work in you, beloved. And what moves God to exercise this power, it is his great compassion that he has mercy on us who are suffering, who are sinners, who are lost in straying. And so, beloved, may we indeed praise God rightly this morning for his great compassion, for his great power, May we seek to know him more and more. And as we do that, may we also pray that his compassion would be displayed through us, that his power would be displayed through us toward the lost and the suffering world. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we indeed praise you for your great compassion, God. Lord, that we who were your enemies, who deserved your scorn, who deserved your contempt, Lord, that you would not feel that way about us, Lord, but that you would feel compassion. You would be moved simply by the sight of our lostness, Lord. Even when we didn't cry out to you, you came near to us, God. Oh, Lord, we praise you for that. And Lord, that you did not merely come near in some impotent way, unable to do anything to help us, God, but you came near strong with power to save. Oh God, we thank you for your power to save. And we pray, Lord, that we would know that power more and more, God. Would we not wallow in our own weakness, in our own fleshliness? But Lord, would we put on that new man that Christ has created in power, to do all the glorious works, to have hearts that are filled with compassion, even as your own heart is. And so, Lord, would you do this great work in us? We pray in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.